On the show today, I'm so excited to be joined by not one, but two incredibly special guests. First up is Broadway legend from shows such as Wicked and Next to Normal, Kyle Dean Massey. And then it's my chat with Ruby voice actress Elizabeth Maxwell. It's going to be a great show, so don't go anywhere. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Benjamin Mayer McKay's Talk To Me. I'm your host, Benjamin, and I couldn't be more excited to be back with you this August. We had a great couple episodes last month. We've got some fantastic interviews for you for the rest of the year as well. And we've got two very exciting ones today. Uh, a couple of chats I did a little bit earlier in the year. Uh, first up, we've got Mr. Kyle Dean Massey. I've tried to get Kyle on the show for years, so it's such a, a pleasure to be able to finally have a, a chat with him. He is a Broadway icon. He's played so many iconic roles, including Fierro and Wicked, uh, and then he's also done shows like uh, uh, Next to Normal, and he played Gabe. Uh, we chat about all of his work and, and what's coming next. And then I, uh, I got to sit down with Elizabeth Maxwell, uh, who is a wonderful actress and, and voice artist. She's probably best known for her work in Ruby. I uh, did that interview thanks to uh, Supernova. We had her out back in, uh, back in June for Sydney and Perth. Um, and there is more Supernova events coming up at the end of the year as well. So uh, I'll have interviews with some of those guests coming up in, uh, in a few months' time. But first, here's my chat with Kyle Dean Massey. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Now, what inspired you to pursue a career in the performing arts? Uh, well, you know, I grew up in Arkansas, and there was kind of a limited cultural um, opportunities there, I guess you would say. And my older sister took ballet class, and she was in the ballet, um, the Nutcracker Ballet. And I saw that, and that was kind of like the first theatrical kind of experience I ever had, and that really is kind of what set me off. Um, that was when I kind of started taking piano lessons and dance class and things like that. So I think that was kind of my first inspiration. That was my kind of moment. And you mentioned that you did uh, piano classes and, and dance classes. So do you think training is an integral part of becoming a professional performer? Oh, 100%. I mean, there's there's really no becoming a professional performer without it, I don't think. Um, like, just the basic tools that you need to do it every single day. Um, I think without it, you're gonna, it's going to be very hit and miss. Um, and I think by having the training there, you're always able to fall back on that and rely on that. I think that's really important to have. So would you say that's one of the most valuable things a young performer can do now, trying to break into the industry? No, I would say it is the most valuable thing, without a doubt. Yeah. And when you're doing eight shows a week, how do you ensure that you stay healthy, both physically and vocally? Well, you know, you don't. That's the thing. I mean, like, just like anybody else, like, you're going to get a cold every once in a while. You might get the flu one year. Um, and so it really goes back to training. Like, how are you able to do the show and rely on training you have to get through it? Um, you know, I feel like if you don't have it there, you're just going to have to constantly call out. But First, keeping yourself healthy, you know. <laughs> a lot of times when it's one of those kinds of shows that is a big thing or it's really demanding, you really just have to live very carefully, you know, diet, exercise, and kind of just taking care of yourself in general for sometimes years at a time. So it's, it's hard. It's hard to stay healthy. But when, you, when you're not and you have to still go to work, you, you do the best you can. So you mentioned when you do the big shows, it's, it's harder, I suppose, you know, to, to have a, a social life. When you do something like Wicked for as many years as, as mm -hmm. you've done, do you just disappear from your family mm -hmm. and friends? Not that show, because um, 
the role that I played in Wicked, the Prince, I mean, he's only on stage for 32 minutes. <laughs> so it's actually, that's probably the easiest job I've ever had. It's, it's not very demanding. It's not that high of a singing. It's not physically that demanding. So that one's actually pretty easy. Um, it's really the other shows that, yeah, you really do disappear. Uh, tr- truly disappear. And what do you think it is that makes certain musicals successful? You know, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I have my own thoughts. I think that there's still something to be said about people kind of all being in one room together and experiencing something that only happens in that space on that, on that day. Um, there's something kind of magical about that just from the onset. Um, but I don't know. I think Broadway shows today, they really kind of just check all the boxes. You know, they're, hopefully the music is great and the story is great and visually they're stunning. I think that um, in order to be popular, you kind of have to check a lot of boxes and, um, and usually just by the fact of ending up on Broadway, you, you've already been through a whole bunch of steps that have kind of gotten you, uh, the, the lesser kind of things kind of don't make it that far. You know what I mean? Like mm. you can go on Netflix and watch a million terrible movies, but really terrible shows don't often make it to Broadway. You know, you have to go out of town tryouts and workshops and readings and things. So hopefully the ones that make it to Broadway already have been kind of checked out and are, are going to be pretty good for the most part, you know? Absolutely. And do you think the kind of stories that musicals are telling now is changing as, as socially and, I suppose, economically the world changes and evolves? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's just like any other art form. It kind of changes with the times. I think there'll always be kind of the escapist shows, um, musicals especially on Broadway that are, you know, about... Um, imaginary places and characters or princesses or what it might, you know, this or that. But I think there are more and more shows that are about musicals that are about just real people. We don't necessarily like have big production numbers, but, um, but it's a little bit more like plays where people sing. I think there's more and more of that. And I, and I think that's exciting. Yeah, it certainly is. Now, one of the changes that I've noticed over recent years from an artist's point of view is how the auditions are structured. Very rarely, even for a callback, will you actually get to meet uh, producers or enter a room, so therefore you'll submit a self-tape. Now, with that, you have the mm-hmm. opportunity to do that you know, as many times as you want. Do you think there's a danger of overthinking things when you're not just entering a room and giving it you know, one great shot? Um, yeah, I think so. I, I think, my, speaking for myself, I've done plenty of self-tapes, so I've probably done you know, five or six takes, and then I just end up using the first one. <laughs> so, like, um, sometimes you can be your own worst enemy when trying to judge yourself as an artist. I don't know that that's ever really that helpful. I think, you know, you try not to do that as, as someone going to the room, like, kind of judge yourself as it's happening. And then when you do create self-tapes, that's really what you're doing. You're, you're trying to pick the best one, and it's, it's hard to do that sometimes. But um, I don't know. I it, it, you're right. It is, it changed a lot. I mean, there used to be no such thing as a self-tape, and now I'd say the majority of my appointments are done that way. So I still do enjoy going into a room sometimes, but I've, I've also really enjoyed doing self-tapes because you just have a little bit more control. You know, sometimes if you're just having an off day or your voice isn't in tip-top shape and that's the day that your audition is, you're just kind of screwed, mm. you know? And it's not really a very good indication of the talent you can bring to the table. And so sometimes by self-taping, you have a little bit more control over what you present. Um, and so I actually kind of like that sometimes. Of course. 
And do you think there's also the danger when you're auditioning for a show that's already established or already has a cast album that you try and copy too much of what the previous artist or the most established artist has done with that role? Um, I don't ever think about that, no, because, you know, uh, there's, a, there's something like Dr. Seuss line or something. I can never remember exactly how it goes. But, you know, no one does you better than you. And it goes for other people, too. Like, you're not going to be... No girl going into Wicked is going to be a Dina Menzel. It should be the best version of themselves going into it. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, so I don't ever think about that. And I, I can't say that I listen to a lot of cast albums, so I'm not heavily influenced by, by those kinds of things anyway. But with that being said, I do think it's helpful if you are auditioning for an existing show that's running on Broadway to see it. Just, just for the sake of understanding the tone, the pace, and just kind of knowing that you still have to kind of color inside the lines. You know what I mean? You're not like reworking a painting here. You're just kind of, you're fitting into something, a machine that's already moving. So you do have to kind of, like I said, color inside the line. Absolutely. And when you joined your first professional musical, how scary was that for you? Oh, I wasn't scared at all. It was an absolute 100% thrill um, because I think at that point, you know, I probably would have still done it for free. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's what I had been doing growing up. Like, you do the school plays and the community theater productions, and then suddenly you're basically doing that, but with better people, and you get paid. I was like, this is a dream. Like, I, I just felt like it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Well, it's great that you had that joy. Is that something that you worry will ever slip away? Because the industry can be very hard emotionally, and, and especially... Oh, no, it's totally... Yeah, I mean, it, that joy definitely slips away. I mean, it's just like any other job, especially when you're doing like a longer run of a show. It's, you know, people always say, when you say, oh, I do, I work on Broadway shows, like, oh, that's so much fun. And I'm like, Ugh. you know, I can say without a doubt, I love it. I love it so much. But I don't know that I'd call it fun. You know what I mean? Like, it's, like, for me, fun would be like going on vacation to the beach. Like, doing the same show 2,000 times, it, it loses its fun. But I still love doing it, if that makes sense. So, and I think it goes for basically any profession in the world. Like, you have to love what you do. You're not always going to want to wake up and, and go into work. But hopefully you still love it at the end of the day. And, and I do have that love that will always be there. But the thrill, the excitement of, like, your first show or, you know, your Broadway debut, that, you know, it's the excitement of your first one because it's your first one, <laughs> you know, by the time you do it thousands of times, that wears off. And that's okay. Of course. And you've also done uh, touring shows in addition to Broadway. Is there any notable mm -hmm. differences between the two? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, first of all, um, you know, touring uh, around the U.S., actually uh, around the world too, there are humongous theaters. You know, you go on, on Broadway, um, for instance, like Pippin. I did Pippin both on Broadway and on tour and, and in Europe. And, like, on Broadway, I think our theater sat, like, 850 people or 900 people. And then you go to Los Angeles and you're playing, like, a 5,000-seat theater. And it's just, it's huge. It's enormous. I don't particularly like performing in big theaters because I feel like you have to be so big with everything to reach the back row. I, I prefer performing in New York. So that's the first major change is it's just a little bit more heightened because you're playing these giant houses. The other thing is, um, you know, you kind of get a reopening night every city. And especially in our country, which is so large and so varied, like, you know, different 
like different jokes land and they enjoy certain parts more or less, or they enjoy the show as a whole more or less. And you kind of have to refigure it out every week when you change cities. Um, as opposed to Broadway, it is kind of like a more of a homogenous crowd that comes in. You can kind of um, relax a little bit more knowing, oh, this, this joke is going to land here. They're going to clap a lot after this number. That's not necessarily the case on the road. Okay. And, and you mentioned certain jokes landing better with some audiences than others. What happens when mm -hmm. the show just isn't resonating with an audience? Is there anything that you as a performer can do? Well, personally, I come alive. I, I love it when the audience is completely unresponsive because I think a lot of times when you get used to hearing these laughs and responses from the audience, you kind of get caught in a rut sometimes. You feel like, oh, what did I do? I'm going to have to redo that every time now. And then when you realize the audience isn't really feeling it, I find it, I find it really freeing. I feel like um, I don't have to necessarily do everything I'm like supposed to do. I can kind of change it up a little bit more. So I actually really enjoy those performances. I, I kind of come alive on those, and I end up discovering new things about the character in the show most times when that happens. So I don't know if that's advice or not, but that's how I look at it. It's a great way to look at it. A lot of people really struggle with those shows. And yeah, when another cast member is struggling, but you're sort of thriving on that, does that create a bit of an odd dynamic mm -hmm. on stage? Oh, totally, totally. I can't tell you how many times, like... Um, I'm, I, I don't really ever play characters that have comic relief. I just, I've never played those kinds of characters. And I think the people that, um, their characters thrive on laughs, it, it really hurts their soul to go out to a house that's not responding to them because that's, that's like the instant feedback that they kind of get and thrive on and, um, kind of pushes them to go for more. So I, I know they find it really frustrating, but, um, but you know, at the same time, what's great about theater is that you get to do it all again tomorrow. So, I mean, like, how upsetting is it really, you know? You're going to redo the next day. Exactly. Now, you talk about instant feedback. You've also done TV where it's, it's much more mm -hmm. delayed before you hear anything from audiences. Do you prefer that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I like them both for so, so very different reasons. Like, I would... I never would think that I don't like doing TV because you don't get the instant feedback. I, I think that that's just something that's, that, that doesn't exist there. You know, I, I like, um, you know, a lot of times you'll shoot a TV show and, and you won't see it for months. Um, or I do a lot of cartoon voices as well. I'll record an episode of a cartoon and it won't air sometimes for years because the animation will take so long. And so I think it's fun and that way, because if you do watch the show when it airs, you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. It's almost like you get to experience it as a viewer, which is something you never get to do on stage. You know, you're always just kind of wondering what it's like for the audience. But um, so actually, I don't know. They're, they're so different. I would never compare them in that way. And you mentioned voice work. And I know a lot of people complain about how taxing that is vocally. Do you have an advantage mm. coming in as a, as a singer and a Broadway performer? Well, yeah, I guess that goes back to training, like knowing how to properly lose your, use your voice. But, um, but yeah, I've played some voice characters before that are very taxing. Um, it's, it's, it's hard work. I think people really think that doing cartoons and voiceover is like easy work you just can do in your pajamas. And, um, I think that's a misconception. It's, it's very, it's very, um, demanding. And, uh, 
it's not like as easy as I think everyone thinks it is. It is you know, a lot of repetition, a lot of high energy, and it gets exhausting. It certainly does. And something else that I know can be uh, odd with animation is that often you don't see the script till you arrive. Is that something that mm-hmm. a little off-putting for you? Not really. Um, you know, I kind of enjoy that because what, what's so cool about um, voiceover is that, you know, it's, you, 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 you do the line over and over and over in a million different kinds of ways. And you kind of get this creative freedom to do anything that you want. And, and you have the time and they expect that. Um, I think there's another misconception doing television work where they're like, oh, well, you know, you, you do take after take until you get it right. And that's 100% not true. Like you get, if you're lucky, like two takes, if, you know what I mean? Like it's, you, you really have to be on and you have to come in with a clear, very clear and sought out character and choices. Whereas in voiceover, it's like you just kind of throw it all at the wall and then the editors decide what they want. And, you know, I don't, I don't need a script ahead of time to do that. Sometimes it's more fun just to kind of look at it, just see what happens, you know? Yeah, don't envy the editor's job on those shows. Uh-huh. Now, um, one of the, the major TV projects you were involved in uh, was TV's Nashville. Now, there's, I think, eight uh-huh. episodes left in, in the final season. Is there, a, is there uh-huh. a chance that you'll be returning to, to wrap up that storyline with Will? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. I worked out of the country all last year. And so, um, I think I was like, I think we had the feeling that maybe last year was going to be the last season. So I kind of pieced out of there, but, um, um, yeah, I think we, I think we ran our course. I think my character and the guy I played opposite, I think we got together and broke up three times on the show. So I think it would be almost ridiculous if we got back together again at this point. Now, I, I do remember, because um, I've, I've been on set for Nashville, because I've got some friends who work on the show, and somebody was just complaining so much that you were there but not singing. They thought that it was the biggest travesty. Um, so was it strange being on a show where non-singers were singing, but you were there not? You know, it was a little strange. Like, I, I have to be honest, I didn't, um, I didn't mind the break. I'm not having to sing, you know, like sing for work. It was kind of nice. Um, the only bummer was that, you know, the music on that show I thought was the highlight of the show. Hmm. Um, it just, they always found really, really wonderful songwriters and songs to feature on the show. And it would have been really cool to have gotten to, um, to sing one of them. But, you know, that just, that wasn't my character. My character was a songwriter. He wasn't a, he wasn't a singer. So. <laughs> well, you did. Uh, along with a number of other Broadway performers, do a concert at 54 Below uh, where you celebrated the music of Nashville. <laughs> yeah. So did that sort of allow you to p- yes. pick and choose your favorite songs from the show and um, get to perform them? Um, well, yeah, that's what I did. I, I, I sang a song that my character wrote on that concert, I remember. Uh, so because my character did, like, you know, write, quote-unquote, write a lot of the songs on the show. So... I guess I, I have some sort of ownership over them, even though I did see them on the show. But yeah, it was fun. It was fun getting to sing those songs that I've heard on set, um, you know, that I didn't really get to sing on. And, I mean, Nashville has a, has a huge fan base, as evident by the quantity of seasons mm-hmm. and, and the tours they've done. So are those concerts yeah. something that you'd like to do again, even if it's at, you know, 54 Below again or elsewhere at other cabaret venues? Um, well, I have my own cabaret show, my own solo show that I tour quite a bit. 
and I, I'll, I'll usually sing like a, a song from Nashville on that set. So I feel like I get my fill doing that, and then I'm able to sing others like Broadway songs as well that I enjoy singing and other pop songs. So um, I think I'm pretty good on my my concert um, sets right now. I, I kind of like what I'm doing. And with your show, is there a chance that you'll uh, start touring that worldwide so our listeners all over the world can see it? You know, I, we have talked about it, so uh, we'll see. Like, um, as of right now, I've got, I have a date in uh, Denver next month and then Palm Springs, California, month after that. So usually the summer is when I do the most of them. So, yeah, I would love to. I was talking about doing one in, uh, in the Netherlands. Um, just because I'd played there with some other shows and maybe in um, South Korea since I'd been there as well. So we'll see. We'll see if I make it. So you've clearly performed in some very interesting places. What was the most unusual place you've ever been able to take a show? Unusual place I've ever been able to play a show? Mm. Hmm. I don't, you know, the first thing that comes to mind was my very first national tour about 15 years ago. I had just graduated from college and, um, we played, I want to say it was like Tallahassee, Florida, um, but they did not have a theater big enough to fit our show. And so they set up this like portable stage and a basketball arena. And we did our show like in the middle of this arena, which I thought was kind of odd. Like it wasn't a rock concert by any means. It was like a Broadway show. So that was kind of weird. I, I, you think there would be something stranger than that, but that's what comes to mind. Well, that's certainly a unique experience. Now, um, what show would you like to do? So what's on your bucket list right now? Of shows that I would like to do? Yeah. You know, I've never done a Sondheim show, like just a music lyric Sondheim show. Um, and I would love to. That company, I think, is my favorite. I would love to play that role at some point, um, sooner than later, before I get pitch out of it. But... um yeah, I think, you know, one of those kinds of things, I, th- I think most of my career has been doing newer shows, and I, I really would like to do do a show that is um, kind of like that, that, that era of musical theater, that kind of 60s, 70s, early 80s kind of thing, when, there were, when it was going out of musical comedy and becoming musical theater. I've never really done one of those shows, and I'd like to. I mean, Sondheim has written some very, very challenging musicals. So, um, yeah, good luck with that one. <laughs> now, um, you did talk about how you've done a lot more modern musicals, and one of those uh, was Next to Normal, which is mm-hmm. a show with exceptionally heavy uh, subject matter. Mm-hmm. When you were doing that, was that more emotionally draining every night than some of the other shows you'd done? Yeah, 100%. I, I feel like... I remember when I first started doing that show, we'd go back to the stage door, you know, 15 minutes after the show had ended, and people would still be sobbing. And they would be like, how are you okay right now? And I remember thinking, because, well, it's just a play. You know, like, I, I come off stage and I feel perfectly fine. But I do remember that by the end of my run, which I did it for about two years, I do remember feeling just, like, pretty empty by the end of it, just really drained. And I... um they were doing a national tour of the show and they had asked several people to do it. And, uh, I mean, from the very beginning, I was like, there's no way I can do it anymore. I just, I, I have to stop, stop now. So it was a, an amazing and wonderful experience. Every bit of that show was just amazing to be a part of, but yeah, it was hard to go in to work every day and know that you're going to have to 
you know, basically die and be devastated for the whole show. <laughs> well, one thing I noticed um, when I saw it here in Australia, and you mentioned that at stage door people were sobbing, but when that reveal about Gabe, uh, I suppose, yeah, him being dead mm-hmm. happens, people were audibly shocked. It wasn't sort of a, a self-contained thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, was that something you, mm-hmm. you heard, you know, 2,000, 3,000 times? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think it always surprised me that, that people hadn't put it together. You know, I always felt like all the clues were there, um, but it still always surprised me that, that people were that su- surprised. Um, but I, what I think was amazing about the setup of that was that you suddenly empathize with someone who has bipolar disorder. You know, it's like you, you, you see the world how she sees it, and, and, and you believe it to be real. And I feel like that was one of the most amazing things about that show is, is extending empathy to the audience for these characters, like in such a brilliant way like that. Mm, it certainly was a, a brilliant show. But when you do uh, shows, whether it's that one or any other, for 2,000-plus performances, do they sort of get stored in your muscle memory? So if you were to do it again, would most of it already be there? <laughs> you know, it's been almost 10 years, believe it or not. It was 2009 that we opened that show. So um, I did, a, um, I did a, a concert version with everybody in Australia, um, I want to say two years ago now, where we, it, that show was hugely popular, not Australia, Argentina. Um, that show was hugely popular in Argentina. And so we did a concert version of the show, and there was a lot that I had to relearn, like a lot of it. I had kind of forgotten a lot of the backup vocals and a lot of the lyrics because there's so much, you know, there's so much music it's sung through. Mm. But I think the, the emotion was a muscle memory. I just remember when Alice Ripley got up there and started singing that I just got right back into it. I just instantly felt like I was her son. I mean, instantly. It, that was weird. I found that to be actually really jarring. So, yeah, so you talk about working specifically with Alice there, but when a cast member changes, especially when you're playing a family, and, but you stay on, does mm-hmm. that change aspects of the show? Because I suppose you would have got into patterns with the other person. Yeah, of course it changes the dynamic of the show, but I mean, the only thing you can do as a performer is, is make it, is embrace those changes and, and, and love them for what they are. You know, we had a, a major cast change when Alice left and an incredible actress, Miramizi, replaced her and they were so, so different and I loved her just as much. Um, I loved the differences. I liked how it changed the show. So... You know, I, I guess that's the only thing you can do, unless you just want to be... I've seen other people get really attached to somebody, and I, I don't think it's good for the show or good for the performer. So um, maybe I consciously decided to do that. I don't know. Be ready to adapt. It is live theatre, after all. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. looking forward, what have you got lined up that you can tell our listeners about? <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I have a movie that I'm going to be shooting this summer called Upstate Manhattan. Um, I've got the cartoon shows that play on Nickelodeon here. I don't know if you guys even have that there. Yeah, we have um, Nickelodeon. It's called Sunny Day. Oh, okay. I'm on a, on a show there called Sunny Day. I play Johnny Ray in that. And we have really fun musical episodes on that. And, um, and of course, my concert tours that, I'll, that I, I'm constantly doing. I'll never stop. And, 
you can always find out the, 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 where I'll be closest to you on my website. There's a concert tab and it kind of tells you where I'm going to be. And uh, what is the website and any relevant social media for people who'd like to follow you? Everything is Kyle Dean Massey. So it's at Kyle Dean Massey for Instagram and Twitter, and it's KyleDeanMassey.com for my website. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. That was my chat with Kyle Dean Massey. Now, up next is my conversation with Elizabeth Maxwell. Now, this was recorded a little earlier in the year, and uh, unfortunately, this one was a, uh, a phone interview, and there is some uh, annoying humming, um, which we've experienced once or twice before with some of our uh, phone interviews. Um, now, it's not on our end, unfortunately, so there's very little that we can do about it. There's something on the, uh, on the guest's end, and uh, a lot of the time, guests, unfortunately, don't have access to a studio, and uh, they can't get to Skype or another uh, calling facility. So um, there is a little bit of an annoying hum. It does die down as the interview goes on, and I do uh, encourage you to stick with it, because Elizabeth does have some truly fascinating insights into the world of performance. So here's my chat with Elizabeth Maxwell. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, what inspired you to pursue a career in the performing arts? Um, well, if you were to take it from my parents, um, I basically uh, was born a performing artist. <laughs> um, and I knew from a very early age that that was kind of what I was put on this earth to do. I actually have like a really firm memory. I was five years old and my mom took me in to get a perm. And um, I was born a blonde and had short hair at that time. And when the whole process was over, uh, the hairdresser told me that I looked like a little Marilyn Monroe. And I asked who that was, and she explained that she was a famous actress. And I actually have a really clear memory of being like, oh, actress, that's what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> and from So I guess I've been all along. And from that moment, how did you go about realizing your dream? Was it uh, through theater school or training, or, or how did you make that happen? Well, I grew up in a pretty small community that didn't actually have any sort of um, theatrical um, performing arts, uh, you know, classes or performances. But I happened to be lucky enough to live in a town where um, a professional ballerina retired. And she started a ballet school and she did two performances a year. And so I actually took uh, classical ballet lessons from the age of five to about 18 because uh, it was the only way that I could get on stage to perform when I was younger. Um, and then uh, at 18, I went off to Chapman University in uh, Orange County, Southern California, and got a BFA in theater there. So do you think it's important for young actors to have some sort of formal qualification? I absolutely do. Um, I don't. I, I think that there's definitely such a thing as uh, natural and raw talent. Uh, but I think just like anything else, uh, like sports or athleticism, um, you really need the training to hone it. Um, and I think that taking some sort of class, whether it's acting or uh, stuff having to do with like your voice and your body, like link later work, or even if it's just improv. Uh, I find that that is really important um, in being able to quickly put out a good performance, consistency, endurance in the booth, um, all of those things. And also with being able to uh, communicate with your directors. 
Absolutely. Now, you've worked both on screen and as a voice artist. Which do you prefer? Oh, gosh. Um, I get asked that a bit, and I never really have... I, I can't say that I prefer one over the other. Um, I get different things, you know, different satisfactions from both. And I hope that I never have to choose between the two in my life and my career. Um, but I will say one of the really beautiful things about voiceover, um, it can get really frustrating with on-camera work, how confined you are by your physical appearance. Um, you know, so much of casting is based on, on physical attributes that are outside of your control. And with voiceover, there is not that limitation. Um, there's a lot more freedom. You know, I've played everything from the opposite gender, you know, old people, children, you know, non, non-human bipedals. Uh, so you're really only limited by what you can accomplish with your vocal cords. Very true. Now, is the preparation process you undertake the same for both voice acting and on-screen acting? Um, not always. There's definitely some similarities, but um, with on-camera work, you often do have a lot more prep time. Um, with voiceover, sometimes you don't find out what character you're voicing or much about them until you literally get in the booth. Um, because so many productions, particularly in the video game realm, have been forced to become so much more secretive, uh, you know, due to, due to information leaks. Um, so if I have the luxury of time, the process is similar, um, but oftentimes with voiceover, I don't. And also with on-camera work, I don't tend to always watch uh, any source material like movies and, you know, TV quite as much. Whereas with voiceover, particularly with anime dubbing, I do always try and watch the original before I dub if I can. Hmm. And you mentioned their video games. Now, a lot of people on the show have complained how strenuous they can be vocally. Is that something you find? Uh, it depends on the game and the character, but yes. Um, both, you know, action, animes, and video games require a lot uh, from you vocally. They call it vocal stress. Um, and they tend to be very high because so many of the video games involve fighting, violence, uh, getting hurt, uh, dying. And so you have to make, you know, generally fairly realistic recreations of those noises. Um, so yeah, (laughs) that, uh, that type of voiceover work can be really tough and leave you kind of, uh, without a voice for a day or two afterwards. (laughs) So how do you go about keeping your voice healthy considering the amount you use it professionally? Um, well, uh, to, the, to the disfortune of my friends, um, in some ways I've had to become a little bit less of a social person. Um, I tend to stay away from really loud places um, these days or, or concerts. Like I don't go to concerts and like scream my lungs out like I used to when I was younger. Um, you just have to make sure that you are protecting it and not overusing it in your day-to-day life. Um, hydration is super, super key. Um, it's the most important and honestly probably the easiest way to take care of your voice. Um, and then we all have like little tricks of our trades, you know, whether it's um, there's like this secret Chinese like syrup that a lot of us use that, um, you know, kind of helps soothe your voice 
if uh, you are in a stressful um, BO session. Uh, a lot of people drink like throat coat tea or other variations of that. Um, everybody has their own little thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, you have been working for quite a while in the entertainment industry. How have you seen things change and evolve since you first started working professionally? Goodness. Wow, that's like a really in-depth question. <laughs> um, there have been a lot of changes. Um, I think I think the biggest thing I notice is how much things have changed with the advent of websites like Netflix and Hulu and um, Funimation offering things like simuldubs and so forth. There is a lot more availability to fans. Um, although in some cases that means like that we have a lot shorter deadlines for stuff like anime dubbing, animation, um, which does also kind of change the casting um, because they do have to, uh, you know, take the geographic location of an actor into account in their casting when the deadlines are that short. Um, and then with on-camera stuff with, you know, Netflix and Hulu, um, there are some pros to that in the sense that I think that companies like Netflix tend and Amazon tend to be a little bit more creative and um, tend to take a lot more risks in the type of content that they're creating. But as an actor, I think it's something we're going to have to address in terms of like contracts and residuals um, because the uh, streaming of TV shows and movies is kind of a new frontier that uh, the unions and the contracts have not yet fully caught up to. So we've got some work to do in that area. <laughs> so overall, do you think streaming services are a good thing for artists? Um, hmm. I think that they can be. I'll put it that way. I think in a lot of ways they are. I think that they can be even better um, with a few tweaks, um, like I said, with contracts and with the unions negotiating. Um, and But overall, I mean, I think that anything that can get you know, your work and uh, out to more people faster, it can only be a good thing. Now, just before I let you go, where can fans stay in touch with you online? Oh, I am active most on Twitter. Uh, my handle is about Elizabeth M., as well as Instagram. And I must have been the first Elizabeth Maxwell to join because my handle on Instagram is just Elizabeth Maxwell. Well, that's nice and easy to remember. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and I look forward to seeing you out at Supernova. Thanks, you as well. And yes, I look forward to meeting you in person. That was my chat with the lovely Elizabeth Maxwell. Now, we are out of time for today, but as always, don't forget to check out our incredible supporters, Palace Nova Cinemas and Mad Zombie Collectibles, as well as our brand new supporter, ZQ Racing. Now, they have some of the best chairs uh, they're designed for gamers, for people who spend a lot of time sitting down playing video games or, you know, like me, I spend a lot of time sitting down editing. And they are some of the most comfortable chairs on the market. They're fantastic. And there's a link in the show notes to where you can go get one of those ZQ Racing chairs. I do truly recommend them. Now, I will be back with another exciting interview later in the month. And as always, please do check out the Phoenix Files audio dramas. 
They are fantastic. I've loved making them. They star BAFTA nominee Paul McGann and Australian icon John Jarrett, as well as Andrew Hansen, Stephen Mahi, Kurt Phelan, and a cast of over 40 incredible actors. You can get them on iTunes, Amazon, and Google Play, and they are available for streaming as well on iTunes or Apple Music and uh, Google Play's streaming service too. And you can buy them directly from us at phoenixfilesaudio.com. And you can stay up to date with me on the socials. Benjamin Mayer McKay over on Facebook. Look for the little blue check mark. Uh, Benjamin Mayer McKay on Instagram as well. And BenjaminMM underscore on Twitter. That is all for today. I'll be back later in the month. Bye for now. <laughs>